Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Kieran Hoare, an archivist working in NUI Galway. He is currently doing a PhD thesis on merchant oligarchies in Ireland, 1377 to 1534. His paper is entitled The Development of a Merchant Oligarchy in the Town of Galway, 1485 to 1534. Uh, first of all, I would like to begin by thanking the organisers of the, this conference for the opportunity to speak here today. Um, it is perhaps appropriate to give a talk on the merchant oligarchies uh, of Ireland uh, here in the ECD, given that Professor Howard B. Clark of the Department of Medieval History from uh, 1968 to 2005 uh, has written what really is the definitive work on the subject with his decolonisation and the dynamics of urban decline in Ireland, 1300 to 1550. Setting his conclusions within a prolonged period of colonial retreat, Clark notes that over 40 walled towns had survived from the medieval phase of urbanisation and that the economy had moved from grain-based marketing towards international trade in other products. He also highlighted opportunities, particularly for port towns, that allowed for what he termed the occasional merchant prince to emerge. He identified different rates of urban decline in Irish towns and stated that the real problem for early Tudor government was the failure of these walled towns to cooperate with royal officials in funding defence measures, being literally beyond the pale. Uh, when the colonial project was reactivated in the mid-16th century, these towns would be central of central importance to royal officials. Writing in 1558, the then Lord Deputy, Thomas Ratcliffe, wanted English settlers who, uh, and I'll quote, must at the first be planted in towns for the better strength, both at ports and in the country, uh, ensuring that they would be, in James Lydon's phrase, the anchor sheets of, of the state. While the historiography of this subject of medieval Irish towns is much broader than Professor Clark's article, he has given us a framework of inquiry and his views have been adopted into wider surveys of the British Isles. The purpose of this paper is to examine one of those towns, Galway, and the evolution of its merchant oligarchy over the course of the first 50 years of Tudor Ireland, by examining their relationship with royal government, their hinterland, and other townspeople. Uh, it will hope to show that the exercise of power by these merchant oligarchies was not simply a matter of acquiring a royal charter and sheltering behind stout town walls. It involved rather the skilful interweaving of competing lordship demands with the commercial dynamic of trade and the projection of power through a town council, public works and patronage of the church. Secondly, towns such as Galway cannot be viewed in isolation. They were firmly embedded in a frontier society and must be viewed in the context of other Tudor, Tudor borderlands and indeed other early modern European frontier societies. Galway in the first half of the 15th century, as with the rest of Connacht, appears to have had little in the way of royal supervision of the judicial and administrative functioning of local government. 
1422, William de Burgo of Connacht was awarded 80 marks per annum for the, from the customs of the port of Galway to defend the locality, with sums subsequently granted to his son and grandson for the same uh, purpose. In uh, 1424, dispute over the inheritance of the goods of Henry Blake Sr. between Henry Jr., Walter and Silly Blake, it was agreed to abide by the arbitration of the same uh, Sir William de Burgh, Knight, Lord of Clanricard and six others. It would be wrong, however, uh, in my view, to view local government as totally independent of royal control at this time. In 1430, Henry and Walter Blake are customers of the King in the Port of Galway. The following year, they are offering security of £5 for two merchants of Bristol. A royal writ of 1440 allowed the Sheriff of Connacht, interestingly the same Sir William de Burgh, to find good sureties to keep the peace between the Blakes, Lynches and Etties. In 1444, Sir William, Henry Lynch, who was sovereign of Galway, and ten others arbitrate in yet another Blake inheritance dispute. There are several over, over 200 years. Um, this arbitration was challenged by James Le Butler, Lord Lieutenant, in the same year. The legal labyrinth continues in court at Dublin, Tume, and another attempt at arbitration in 1445, uh, adjudicated by Sir William, the Sovereign of Galway, and Master John, who was um, the, the, the abbot of the Franciscan um, uh, monastery in, in, in Galway. All of this highlights two things. Firstly, the central role of the de Burgh Lords of Clanricard as sheriffs of Connacht in the judicial and administrative affairs of the town and hinterland. While the Lords of Clanricard were undoubtedly the leading political and military power in the area, they could not act without impunity and were supervised to some extent by the Dublin administration. Secondly, for especially litigious townspeople, a variety of local, ecclesiastical and royal courts were available to them, as well as arbitration. Um, Yorkist Galway provided many opportunities to certain townspeople to acquire wealth, either through landholding, deed <coughs> of mortgage or commercial activity. A royal grant, dated the 29th of August, 1464 confirmed existing privileges, granted tolls and customs for the walling, paving and defence of the town, and that no person, the Lord Lieutenant and Chancellor accepted, could enter the town without the consent of the council. The extent of trading links can also be traced through wills. For example, when John Blake died in 1468, his 18 debtors, who owed him for an estimated 2,400 hides, included one merchant from Bristol and 17 Irish merchants. The growth of the Icelandic trade, uh, essentially Bristol vessels using Galway as a way station for the selling of on of stockfish and oil to the Portuguese. Uh, this has been um, commented on many years ago by D.B. Quinn. Uh, as well as that, uh, a small but continuing trade in wine and hides, uh, sort of triangular trade with Spain and Flanders, and, in particular, the steady trade with local ports such as Limerick, Waterford and Bristol all contributed to the influx of wealth and commercial opportunities available to the townspeople of Galway. Uh, moving on then, the main points of the 1484 charter, uh, Royal Charter to Galway, 
consisted of licence to yearly elect a mayor and two bailiffs. Um, no one could enter the town without permission and the de Burgo lords of Clan Ricard were specifically excluded from exercising any lordship over the town. The new corporation gained control of St Nicholas's Church at the same time. The right to appoint a vicar to St Nicholas's had belonged to the Cistercian Abbey of Knockmoy, probably at the instigation of the de Burgos in medieval times. The establishment of a perpetual vicarage in 1398 ensured the spiritual needs of the community were looked after. But as the papal registers of the 15th century show, there were many disputes and rival claimants to this position. The establishment of the Collegiate Church of St. Nicholas with a warden and eight vicars under the control of the corporation led to a new era of reorganisation of the church, as well as the acquisition of benefices in the surrounding locality to support the college. At the beginning of Tudor government, therefore, Galway was a small but prosperous seaport on the edge of the Tudor polity, indeed on the edge of the known world, which had achieved a certain level of autonomy from the Lordship of Clan Ricard and was left to administer its own judicial, administrative and ecclesiastical affairs within a loose framework of royal supervision. It was one thing, however, to acquire the royal charter and associated rights. It was quite another to successfully interweave the different judicial and commercial demands to help foster the growing sense of urban identity and independence. So what I propose to do now is to to move on to those external relationships, looking in particular at the themes of lordship, defence and revenue. So in terms of the exercise of lordship in later medieval Ireland has been the subject of much debate. Undoubtedly, the King of England exercised lordship over the townspeople of Galway. When abroad, for example, there were his subjects, In judicial terms, the King's courts had oversight of Galway's morality court, right through the Yorkist and early Tudor periods. On the 5th of May, 1467, Philip Devlin of the town of Galway, King's tenant, was pardoned for the death of William O'Murrid, Irishman and King's enemy. In the Irish Parliament of 1484, an act was passed giving licence to Peter Lynch to enter a tenement and cellar in accordance with an award made by the Sovereign of Galway and John Blake. In a Parliament sitting at Trim in January 1492, a judgment of the Morality Court between Leonard Lynch and James Adurnus of Genoa was reversed. The town was also expected to follow the King's laws. It was noted specifically in an Act of 1484, for example, stating that the port towns had to accept the King's lawful currency with malefactors going before the Merati court, half the fine going to the town and half going to royal coffers. All of this shows the exercise of lordship by royal officials over Galway. This authority was not questioned. While the Merati court operated with a large degree of uh, autonomy, royal courts were available to townspeople when required, and royal government had no problem in issuing edicts on matters such as currency to the town when appropriate. While earlier historians have claimed that Roman law rather than common law was used in the town, this has been comprehensively refuted more recently. Evidence of the former comes from a parliamentary review of a case involving Germain Lynch in the 1470s, but appears to have been at the suggestion of two Limerick merchants, 
Um, so again, the, the idea that Limerick uh, was maligning Galway is, is a, a long and fruitful one that, that, that uh, comes from Hardiman onwards and uh, may exist in hurling and other matters today. But, um, and again, it's interesting that in the 1530s, when it comes up as an issue when Henry VIII is writing to the town of Galway, I think that's at the instigation of Edmund Sexton, who was, uh, I think, mayor of Limerick at the time. Um, in terms of defence, one of the key roles uh, of any king was defence, and in the case of Galway, this too was in essence contracted out uh, for most of the time to the lords of Clan Ricard. The payment of certain amounts from the customs in the first half of the 15th century to the lords of Clan Ricard, who also acted as sheriffs of Connacht, appears to have been claimed uh, by them up until uh, 1543. Interestingly, when the earldom of Clan Ricard is established. Throughout the early Tudor period, there was a conflict between the lordship of Clan Ricard and Tyrconnell under the O'Donnells, uh, with the area of Lower Connacht, which is, well, a bit more than present day County Roscommon, raided and counter raided many times. Indeed, the major battle in the, the western region, the Battle of Nakdo in 1504, owes something to this long-standing conflict between Clan Ricard and the O'Donnells. Although it is true that Clan Ricard's support for his kinsman, Sir James Ormond, brought him into conflict with Garrod Moore, Earl of Kildare, from 1492 onwards, Hugh Rowe O'Donnell brought a large force from Ulster to support Kildare against Clan Ricard. Uh, other factors uh, involved in this included Clan Ricard's raiding of the O'Kelly Lordship the previous year, as well as his entering the town of Galway without its consent. The Annals of the Four Masters states that after the battle, the Earl of Kildare was keen to bring his forces to the secure town of Galway to protect them. However, O'Donnell persuaded him to hold the field. And again, it kind of stresses O'Donnell's role rather than, uh, say, the Book of Hoth, which stresses um, the Palesman's role. Um, when they did reach the town the next day, they were fated with 40 tons of wine and the singing of a Te Deum at St. Nicholas's. So certainly the town supported Kildare in his actions. Uh, noting Hugh O'Donnell's death the following year, uh, the same annals of the Four Masters note that he had the obedience of all the lords of Connacht excepting Clan Ricard, uh, and I'll quote, who, however, did not go unrevenged for his disobedience. Uh, it was not just Clan Ricard uh, who posed a threat to Galway as well, I should say. Uh, Tyg Bornock Ivrian led a large force from North Clare into Irconnacht in 1503, and security for seagoing vessels was also an important consideration. The townspeople of Galway do not appear to have taken an active part uh, in these lordship struggles and busied themselves with the protection of the town. In 1505, the corporation ordered that every man had to answer the air or skirmish of the town gates with a defensible weapon or face a fine of 12 pence. Bylaws prohibiting sales of weapons to Irishmen, prohibitions on bringing any Burks, MacWilliams, Kellys or others into the town at Christmas or Easter without licence, and for the maintenance of town walls, all show the defensive considerations were important to the townspeople. Without doubt, Galway was frontier society when it came to defensive matters and had an uneasy coexistence with the Lords of Clan Ricard. In terms of revenue, royal government <coughs> did not acquire large amounts of wealth from Galway. 
However, it did manage wealth from the town in the form of patronage, underpinning what little local government structures it had in the West. Uh, we have already mentioned payments made to the Lords of Clanricard from the customs of Galway uh, and the maintenance of defence in the area, which was a role they seemed to have relished. We find William de Burgh paying monies into the Dublin Exchequer in 1493, 1494 and 1499. Um, there was also revenue generated within the town itself and this revenue seems to have been under the control of leading members of the corporation. In 1526, it was noted that Stephen Fitzdominic Lynch held the fees of Galway, which were then granted to Robert Cowley of Dublin, merchant, uh, for 30 years without account, although he was the, the king's official, as, as uh, David mentioned in the last, last paper. Uh, these fees included two shillings sterling for every last of hides and were est estimated at £8 per annum, the excess being accounted for to the exchequer. Other revenue-generating activities for the Crown included the renting out of three nets on the river, a mill and bakehouse. And again, these appear to have been held by the Cranmore branch, the leading branch of the Lynch family. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, they became a, a target later on for the, the Martin family, who were another one of the tribes. Uh, even when uh, an outsider, Robert Cowley, um, uh, acquired these fees in 1526, this may not have changed the actual collection of revenue on the ground, so that was probably still continued on by townsmen. And it may also have been payback for a dispute over the privilege of wine in Galway two years previously. In the three areas of interaction then between townspeople and external administration, uh, the areas of lordship, defence and revenue, we can see a complex interweaving of competing interests. Royal authority operated over the town to the same extent as any borough in early Tudor Ireland. I would also argue that, in general, the townspeople maintained a stable relationship with their hinterland, which should be viewed as similar to any frontier society in Europe. For the merchant oligarchy within the town itself, how did, this status of, how did the status of prominent uh, townspeople, how was this reflected to other townspeople? And this forms the last part of the paper. In the first instance, it should be said that there were very few prominent town people in Galway. Similar to other port towns, a handful of families controlled property and commercial activity in the town, as well as the administrative and judicial uh, structures. It is worth pointing out that no non-tribe name appears in the corporation records at this time. Of 345 named mayors, bailiffs and masters or aldermen, 68% were lynches, 7% bodkin, 5% Martin, with eight other families mentioned. It is clear from the evidence that council membership was a, was a closed shop. Um, property was very carefully controlled within the town. And again, I won't go into this in detail because I don't have the time. Um, but again, you look at Lynch's Castle, which is still there today, that formed the centre of, a, of a, the Lynch patrimony, as well as a tower house and... Uh, uh, estate in Newcastle, which is in, was in the, in the, the, the suburbs of the town. Uh, the same with the Blakes, you had Blakes Castle uh, in, in the town as well. There are many examples of wills of prominent townspeople at this time, and they all show that while commercial interests may have provided them with movable goods and money, the property held by them, not only houses but also lands, were of central importance 
and their passing on within families was carefully managed. Uh, and in the case of the Blakes, as I've said, the course of much litigation. It should also be said that royal patronage, particularly the filling of posts such as customers and the granting of fishing rights and mills along the river, um, may, may not have added greatly to their wealth, but would have added greatly to their prestige. Um, in the period of our study, these rights were kept closely within the Lynch family, but from the 1530s on appear to have been targeted by Thomas Martin, who was well able to use his legal training and Dublin connections to acquire property and rights in other towns. Um, there are other ways, I won't go into the detail now because I don't think I have the time, uh, in, uh, that they projected their status. So, that, for example, they were involved in edifying the town. Uh, the Great Bridge at Galway was built in 1442 at the expense of Eamon, Natuna, uh, Lynch. Uh, although it can't have been that good because the mayor and two bailiffs fell off it in 1507. Um, other examples of public work uh, included an attempted canal from Lakatoya over to the Corrib, uh, which uh, never was uh, completed. And I suppose more importantly, then, uh, there was a major fire in 1500, uh, which um, James Lynch Fitzmartin used the king's fees to re-edify the town, uh, build Shoemaker's Tower, which is still there today, uh, edified the town walls and built up the quays. Um, they also projected status through, through the church, um, through the building of, of naves in St. Nicholas's and the establishment of a, a, a Dominican Abbey in uh, 1488, and uh, the Augustinian uh, Abbey in 1508. Uh, perhaps the biggest impact of the merchant oligarchy on the ordi ordinary citizens of the town was through their <coughs> control of the morality court, the common council of the town, and the passing of bylaws, including regulation of market, public order, and the admission of freemen to the town. Um, for example, in 1507, it was ordered that no butcher could take can a ghoul or skein lack out of any cow he sells? No boatman could take wine from a butt, pipe, or hogshead he, he was carrying without permission, or sell salt to anyone without permission. Wages were also regulated. Uh, in terms of public order, we have already mentioned our answering the call to arms at the town walls, but there were also prohibitions on impeding the mayor or his offices, fouling the street, the keeping of houses of ill repute the sale of aquavitae and honeydale, as well as prohibitions on the hurling of the little ball and handball, but allowing the great football, and perhaps after last night's uh, display, maybe they, they, that might be reenacted again. Um, <laughs> finally, the acceptance of free men into the town the late, in the late 1530s saw some from Attenry gain freedom for the town, including the Kerwin and Brown families, and in 1500, Donal Ogo Fulligan, a goldsmith, was admitted to the freedom of the town, provided, for he, he, provided he cared for his wife and his father-in-law, Andrew Fallon, who had been bailiff. So in conclusion, therefore, it can be argued that the identity of the merchant oligarchy of Galway was formed essentially through the experience of living in a frontier society and all that this entailed in terms of defence, the loose and close ties with, with a hinterland where the Irish language, laws and customs held sway. As for the merchant oligarchy themselves and their role in the town, the interweaved rights garnered from the Crown over the previous 200 years, to uh, they used these rights to control the administrative and judicial functions of town government, 
uh, more or less excluding the Lords of Clanricard from town administration by 1584. Uh, the, the early Tudor period was a period of stability for Galway, which saw the merchant oligarchy forge a strong identity for itself and which would inform its interaction with royal government and neighbouring lordships uh, from the mid-Tudor period and into the, the mid-17th century. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHub.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHub.ie website.